From Dwell Magazine, this is Raw Materials Three Ways, and I'm Dan McGinn. I'm an architect and writer, but for RM3, consider me your guide to the fascinating and surprisingly dramatic world where materials and humans intersect. Consider the clam. Clam-like creatures date back about 500 million years in the fossil record, but the twin-shelled animals we recognize today as clams really started to design themselves into being only about 250 million years ago, after the greatest mass extinction our planet has ever known. Known as the Great Dying, the Permian-Triassic extinction, not to be confused with the Cretaceous-Tertiary extinction that wiped out the dinosaurs 65 million years ago, signaled the death of 96% of marine species and 70% of land-dwelling species. For tens of millions of years after this environmental catastrophe, clams ruled the roost. Along with their bivalve cousins, oysters and mussels, clams figured out how to survive on trace amounts of oxygen and food, and how to extract calcium from the water to create stone-like shelters. Inside their protective shells, they bided their time in relative solitude for five million years until the oceans recovered. They weren't lonely. Clams aren't exactly a social species. Far from it, they hung out naked and carefree in their little calcium apartments, happy as clams. So the next time you gaze upon a clam, or a mussel, or oyster for that matter, think of the evolutionary plot twist that resulted in this noble character. What you're seeing is the trace of a clever, site-specific design in response to a barren planet we wouldn't recognize today. Clams, mussels, oysters, they're all master builders. All are survivors. And unfortunately for them, they're all delicious. Having lived in New Orleans for five years, I know a thing or two about oysters, or at least how to eat them. Raw on the half shell, grilled with garlic butter, deep fried and foot-long po'boys. Today, one of the best places to go for oysters in New Orleans is the Blind Pelican on St. Charles. Time it during their late afternoon happy hour, and you can snag a dozen for three bucks. One job, it's one job on it. You know, you pick up your oysters, you open them up, you know, you just, you just lay them out, you clean them off, and then you start opening them in the one job. That's Aaron Williams. He's an oyster shucker at the Blind Pelican. Push in. Once you get to the sweet spot, then you make a turn or open. Because we're the home of the 25 cent oysters. I mean, at any time, we can shuck at least 8,000 oysters in one night. 8,000 oysters, and that's just one night in one bar. It makes you wonder, what happens to all those shells, all those stone shelters? In what seems like a poetic nod to the oyster's ancient roots as a climate change survivor, Aaron tells us that the blind pelican contributes a lot of their shells to a nonprofit called the Coalition to Restore Coastal Louisiana. Well, you're taking the old oyster shells, they're putting them in like almost like on sandbag sacks, and they're using them to reline the coast. What to do with all the shells is not a modern dilemma. Humans have been dealing with it from that day long ago when someone was hungry enough to pick up an oyster and say, this rock is different from the other rocks. Let's eat the thing in the middle of it. What did our forebears do with all their shells back in the day? Turns out they created these massive heaps called shell middens. It is a term mostly associated with coastal indigenous societies and tribes that uh, would really not have agricultural opportunities because they subsisted in saline marshes and coastal areas. That's Rich Campanella. He's a professor of geography at the Tulane School of Architecture in New Orleans. So their main source of protein tended to be shellfish, oysters, clams, 
And tribes uh, and communities would consume so many of these that they would discard the shells in these mounds that are called middens. They served as living spaces, to some degree uh, ceremonial spaces. Uh, In some cases, we have descriptions from the 1800s, not even the 1700s, that speak of Big Temple and Little Temple in Lake Salvador across the river that were uh, 10 and 20 feet high. And uh, it's probably in the vicinity of two to 3,000 years ago that we start to see a human history uh, in this part of the Delta Egg Plain. So why go to the trouble of creating a special place for all the shells? Shells would have been the biggest, bulkiest, longest lasting debris that a coastal tribe would produce. You ever look at an oyster shell, I mean, it's a massive piece of calcium. One little tiny piece of meat produces a whole lot more shell. So you multiply this by hundreds of years and thousands of people, and there's really no reason to disperse them. There's more of a reason to accumulate them, to build up topography. Can you talk to us about what happened when the Europeans came into the picture? When French colonials and later Spanish colonials came on the scene over the course of the 18th century, of course, all this terrain, from their perspective, was viewed as theirs, as an uh, imperial possession. They saw the native peoples here as peoples to be displaced, removed, and along with that came the resources that the land held, and one of them were these middens. Construction of New Orleans, which begins in 1718, comes from the cypress timbers, which are harvested from surrounding uh, swamps. It also comes from the hardwoods, which are up on the natural levee, which of course has to be cleared for the city proper. But increasingly, there's a need for brick, uh, particularly in the Spanish era, after two catastrophic fires in uh, 1788 and 1794, the Spanish put in building codes uh, requiring or at least strongly encouraging brick construction. And so uh, how do you make bricks in an environment like this? Well, there's a number of sources of clay. Uh, And the best source was across Lake Pontchartrain in the piney woods of what is now St. Tammany Parish. So if you're making bricks, you're going to need mortar. And that's where the middens came into play. So you have colonials, including smugglers and pirates, roving all through the Barataria region across across the river from New Orleans. And so they would bring these shells, uh, rangia clam shells and oyster shells, to where the bricks were being made. If you take the charred, burned lime made from oyster shells, and you mix it with ground shells of coarser texture, along with sand, uh, and then mix water with it, you could make mortar, basically a very simple natural cement. Now you're in business. You're making the bricks in your kiln from the clay. You have timber coming out of your sawmill. You're making mortar. You could ship all of this across the river to New Orleans. And this was done in large quantities. And uh, New Orleans gets constructed with these materials. I went to school in New Orleans uh, back in the 1980s. And I don't remember any big shell heaps. When did the uh, middens go away? The middens are in remnant form today. The last illustrations I've seen of depicting them as really high and salient in the coastal landscape come from about the 1850s or 60s. 
So I'm guessing by the turn of the 20th century, they're mostly completely tapped out. If you go to these sites today, you could recognize them with just an increase in the frequency of clam and oyster shells, but you don't really see them mounded up. For someone that's so interested in the where and why there, that must be especially difficult to see these historic sites kind of slowly eroding away. Along with those historic sites eroding away uh, grows threats to current communities. So it is an ecological and a human crisis of really superlative uh, proportions. Talking about 20-foot-tall shell middens got me thinking back to a class on materials I had while I was at Tulane. Turns out, aside from being astute master builders themselves, oysters and their calcium-clad cousins played a large role in the development of limestone, a material that humans have built with for over 10,000 years, one of whom is architect Steve Rake. I'm an associate partner with Lake Flato Architects. I'm based in our San Antonio office. And I've been practicing architecture for about 25 years, and 15 of those have been down here in South Texas with Lake Flato. When we wanted to talk about limestone and architecture, I automatically thought of Lake Flato. So before we talk about a couple of your projects, can you give us a brief backstory of limestone, what it is, how it was formed, that kind of thing? The interesting thing is the backstory of limestone is anything but brief. If you go back 140 million years ago or so, most of what present-day Texas is now was under a vast inland sea that went from what is the Gulf of Mexico all the way up into sort of Nebraska, probably. And then over the next 80 million years or so, as mountains rose and mountains were eroded, much of that sediment was washed down uh, towards the Gulf of Mexico. But in that 80 million years, the part of Texas that was covered by the Inland Sea was just being dropped with layer and layer and layer of sediment. And the sediment would sit at the bottom of that shallow sea, and it would be animals and fish and birds and all of the things that you hear about as, as fossils. And then, of course, it, it dried out and it hardened, and it was sitting now under a huge amount of sediment that weighed millions and millions of tons but all of that sediment is what we now know as limestone. When you think of wood, you think of a material that was alive at one time, but not many people think about rock in that way. It almost seems like limestone is a kind of biological stone of sorts. Uh, for sure, and if you, if you keep thinking about the relationship between wood and stone, we have a, a hardwood store here in San Antonio that has a giant cross-section of a tree that's probably about eight feet in diameter. And on that big cross-sectional slab of wood, they've pinned significant historical events like the signing of the Declaration of Independence and when the Alamo was under attack. And stone is very much uh, like wood in that it is a record of time only the intervals of those times are significantly greater. Um, it's almost like wood is the sexy, younger uh, sibling of stone. Generally speaking, why do you like working with it? It's an incredibly durable material, which is one of the reasons that we like it. The sun in the summertime here can just be unbearable, and so that stone accepts the sun's rays 
and protects you from the heat. It stands up to the sun in a way that, that wood does not. I, I like the, how you said that uh, limestone kind of stands up to the sun. It kind of feels at times in your work and in other uh, stone projects I've seen where it's almost like stone has a deal with light. It just accepts light in such a great way and really adds to the, uh, the experience of the architecture. It does. And what's interesting about limestone is that it can come in, in lots of different textures and there's many different ways and textures that you can impart onto the stone. You can saw limestone, you can hone limestone, you can put a texture on it with a needle hammer or a bush hammer. You can split it and that will have a, an interesting texture or you can chop it. It's pretty malleable in some ways, and it can take on lots of different characters. I asked Steve about Lake Flato's addition to the Witte Museum in San Antonio, a 95-year-old building focused on the history, science, and culture of South Texas. Like many of their projects, Lake Flato's addition emerges from the surrounding landscape with equal measures of boldness and reverence. Buff-colored limestone walls, interspersed with dashes of red brick, anchor the building. Their warm mass is balanced by a graceful glass and steel structure with deep roof overhangs. The Woody Museum was an addition to one of the great museums here in San Antonio. The original Woody Museum was clad in limestone because it was one of those great civic buildings and limestone is a material that imparts a great sense of civic presence and permanence. You can't really look at this project without bringing up the idea of craft. And your team seemed to really take a lot of care with the scale and the color of the limestone blocks. It almost feels like a puzzle has been solved. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how you were able to create the overall exterior with your craftsmen? Well, there's a great tradition of masonry craftsmen here in San Antonio in the 1830s. Up until about 1900, there was a, a lot of immigration from Germany, and a lot of those German immigrants landed in San Antonio and in the Hill Country. And we've built relationships with them over the history of the firm in doing museums and libraries and houses. That exchange with them early on is really important in understanding what we want to do with the building and how they want to build it and, and how they work with the stone. And when you look at that building from the outside, you can almost imagine being out in the hill country and looking at a road cut where they've put a highway and, and in order to put the highway in place, they had to make a cut through one of these hills. And when you do that, it's like looking into the growth rings of a tree and they're really quite beautiful. And so that's something that we have done for the history of the firm is just try to use this stone in a, in a very reverent way. Lake Flato is also known for a deep portfolio of single family houses, which articulate the complex relationship between site, material, and light. Many of them, including the Olmos residents in San Antonio, use native limestone effectively to amplify a sense of shelter and to root the home to the land. So the Olmos residence sits in one of the older, more established neighborhoods in San Antonio and it has neighboring houses on two sides. It has a street on the third side and a street on the fourth side. But across the street on the fourth side is a flood basin. And so it's just a very lush, green, forested view. And so what we tried to do there was set the house up 
so that we could use these heavy stone walls to screen the neighbors on two sides, screen the street on the third side, but let the house open up to the fourth side and just look out into this, this verdant forested landscape. And so even though it's in the middle of this neighborhood, it feels like you're out in your own forest and it's framed by these beautiful stone walls. There's sort of two main rectilinear stone forms. They form an L and it, it's almost as if they are themselves two walls that you're almost living within. And then that allow, that sort of tees up how you can then introduce this more kind of a floating glass and steel pavilion. And I, I just love the interplay of these forms and the courtyards they make. Yeah, and, and that's the other great thing that we had at the Olmos residence was we had these incredible live oak trees. And so we built the house around the trees and around the view. And your observation of of these stone walls, that's exactly what we intended to do was you, you put the more functional pieces of the house or the more functional program of the house in these big stone walls. So they're things that are a little bit more inwardly focused, like the kitchen, like powder rooms and and pantries and then you get out into this courtyard created by that and you have this beautiful glass pavilion that's the living in the in the dining room and on the one side you're looking at this incredible oak tree this live oak tree it just fills that whole courtyard and has such a wonderful presence on all on its own and then on the other side there's a pool that's up against a wall so you get light reflecting off the pool that's animating that courtyard it's kind of a study in contrast. There's the limestone, you know, has a certain mass and gravity, but light and shadow is, is so important. And I've seen that in a lot of Lake Flato's other work too, this contrast between kind of heaviness and lightness. Is that something that's intentional in, in the work of your firm? Very much so, yeah. And and I think it's it's the way that you use the building itself to shape that experience that makes these spaces so wonderful. When you are looking out along one of these stone walls in the middle of the day and the light is hitting it in a certain way, it can look fairly mute and it can look very background. But as the sun rotates around and is more oblique to the texture of the stone, it, it casts these wonderful shadows on it. And you just get a real appreciation for the texture of the stone and the richness of the colors in it. it all of that goes into how we think about our buildings and how we orient them and how we leverage the thing that the land gives us. Although limestone contributes a sense of monumentality to architecture, it's also surprisingly adaptable. Civilizations as far back as the Macedonians discovered that something interesting happens when you grind up limestone and burn it. The resulting substance, known as quicklime or calcium oxide, can be used to make cement which can then be turned into a variety of recognizable building materials, like concrete, plaster, and stucco. A more recently developed product made from this ancient process is fiber cement board, which has been used as an affordable exterior siding material since the early 1900s. Originally reinforced with asbestos fibers, current products use wood or synthetic fibers to keep the thin cement panels from cracking. To find out more about how to tap into the creative potential of this humble material, I reached out to Emily Taylor Welty. She heads up the design build component of the Small Center at Tulane. It's a community design resource that gets students and faculty plugged into real world projects in New Orleans. 
After 13 years working on community buildings and public spaces, Emily knows how to maximize the impact of fiber cement board. I think what draws me to it in this hot, humid climate that is New Orleans, it's termite-proof, fire-proof, rain-proof. You know, it's affordable. It covers all the basics and still allows us to capture the form of a building without a lot of noise. It's such a kind of ubiquitous material. We don't often really stop to consider where it comes from and how it's made. It just seems to kind of magically exist. Can you talk a little bit about how it's manufactured? So fiber cement board is essentially just a combination of cement, sand, and wood pulp. It takes a lot of energy and effort to get it into its final product, but that process is uh, starting with sand and adding water, adding fine wood pulp to get sort of an oatmeal or applesauce consistency. And then you blend it up with cement, and um, through a series of cylinders and sieves, you make fine layers that are combined to make thicker and thicker product, cut, dried, steamed, primed, and out to the market. I don't know about you, but to me, one of the things that makes it so appealing is that it's it's kind of neutral. You can go traditional if you want to, but you can also detail it to be really clean and modern. Do you find that to be true? Like its neutrality is something that appeals to you? Sure. As a designer, the neutrality of the product appeals to me. I think what drives me a little bit nuts is seeing how often it's used in a sort of fake wood grain pressed way that's trying to mimic other things that it, it's not, or maybe trying to reference old lap siding, when really I think it's best when it just is what it is and stays a little more true to its own self. Yeah, I think that's true too. Whenever I see fiber cement board with a wood grain pattern or garage doors with kind of a fake wood grain pattern, it, it always seems to remind me of a material that's having an identity crisis. Like it's not too comfortable with it in its own skin and feels like it wants to be something else. Yeah, and also don't try so hard to be somebody else. Be yourself. Like, come on, fiber cement. Do your thing. Achieving a really great design with fiber cement board often comes down to the details. So how do you take, you know, this workhorse material that could go on any standard spec house in in the world, and how do you take that to the next level? Like, what are some lessons you've learned over the years to kind of detail it and achieve the design goals you have on a project? I think when a project is well designed with this product, there's a logic to where the joints happen. Oftentimes alignments really make a project sing in the in those final details. And using transitions such as fry reglets or other pieces of trim that help to make the transition really help a project stand out and not just be some half forgotten cladding system. It really can make a project dynamic. I think one of the issues that we oftentimes face, if, if you're just working with a standard contractor who's accustomed to throwing Hardy up on any old house or, or any sort of fiber cement product, if you're using it in a slightly less conventional way or just paying more attention to the detailing, you have to sit down with the folks building it and really talk through the intention of each design and each transition or, or joint and make sure that you're really clear that you're not just going to skin this like a spec house. I like the fact that you talked about actually having a dialogue with the builder. And I know that's important to you as a designer. You actually like to get out onto the site and really understand how a building goes together. 
One of the big things we do at Small Center and at the Tulane School of Architecture is get students out in the real world working on projects, hands-on design build stuff. So right now we've got students on site hammering away building a house that is in fact clad with hardy board for many of the reasons that we stated earlier, non-combustible, sort of rain-resistant, termite-resistant product that it is, it's also affordable. And the students get to learn firsthand what it is to work with these materials and how they can be better detailers and, and therefore designers of projects. And just to slip in there, <laughs> one of the things that we've learned in working with it is just how dang dusty this product can be as you cut it and manipulate it. And so one of the, the drawbacks, I'd say, one of the few drawbacks I can think of of fiber cement is that when you cut it and sort of pulverize it with a saw, you're releasing a lot of silica dust. So you have to be really careful to uh, wear proper respiration or have a shop vac set up that's getting a lot of that dust out of the sort of breathable air. Yeah, that's interesting. I like the way you phrase that. I've talked to students in the past before and talked to them about that construction is almost like an explosion in reverse. A lot of manipulation of materials happening and it's not always a peaceful process. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there's a lot of violence that comes along with bringing something into the world. So fiber cement board, it does seem to be so so kind of neutral and mysterious as to like where it came from. Like it just seems like it doesn't immediately offer up what its roots are. And you mentioned earlier what materials were in it, but if you take it a step further, have you thought at all about, or is it interesting to you, where cement comes from, for instance, the stuff that's in it that makes it such a durable material? To make this product happen and, and exist, I mean, a majority of it is cement, which, you know, is coming out of all this embedded built life energy that exists in the world or did exist at some point and has sort of calcified into whatever these little critters calcify into and then get crushed and pulverized and processed into this product that you just go pick up at Home Depot is sort of insane. Like I wish there was some way to capture the amazingness of this thing in what sits on the shelf. I realize in retrospect, I wish I would have paid more attention in chemistry class in high school. There is something way more interesting than I used to think. The structure of us you know, as we walk around in our bones and the structure of all these marine critters that lived millions and millions of years ago and have turned into this biological rock and the, how that turns into various other products that we use, that at some level it's this balance between, you know, metal and mineral and all this amazing kind of conversation of elements that happens as you put things together and form our built environment. It makes me wonder what you and I are going to be one day after we're long gone and our bones are crushed up into Lord knows what. I want to be a part of a, maybe like an ice cream store, maybe. <laughs> the foundation of an ice cream facility. Sure. I like it. Sounds great. On April 10, 2019, scientists at the National Science Foundation released the first ever image of a black hole, 55 million light years away from us, at the center of a galaxy known as M87. Shepard Dolman, the director of the Event Horizon Telescope Collaboration, 
made the announcement with a line that seemed to be pulled from a Walt Whitman poem. We have seen what we thought was unseeable. I love the layers of time loaded into this fuzzy, hard-won image. It took 55 million years for this donut of light, this burning ring of fire, to get to us. The limestone we use to build our buildings is also an image of sorts, a trace of this ancient time. Contained within this calcium-rich biological rock is a record of prehistoric life and death. Compared to the slow grind of geological ages, the historical time that we humans currently occupy is downright snappy. After all, even though our ancestors lived in stone caves for a few hundred thousand years, we've only been stacking stones to create structures for about 10,000 years. From those early days of civilization, fast forward to 1499 AD, a year of great change across the globe. In Milan, Leonardo da Vinci put his finishing touches on the Last Supper. In the New World, new at least to Europeans, Christopher Columbus was making friends and enemies alike on the third of his four voyages. A few hundred miles to the northwest, Native Americans created their shell middens. In China, the Ming Dynasty was in full bloom. And finally, off the coast of the country we now know as Iceland, a clam was born and lived the first of her 507 years. 507 years. Ming the Clam, as researchers named her, lived through the dynasty for which she was named, lived through the Age of Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, the Jazz Age, the Information Age. In miniature, and perhaps more tangibly, this bivalve time traveler was like the image of Black Hole M87, helping us to bridge the gap between the now and a distant then. Although she ironically died at the hands of the same researchers who were trying to determine her age, she was still able to whisper an enigmatic message to us before she passed. Time, space, light, gravity. Clams, man. It's all clams. RM3 is a podcast by Dwell Media, your guide to living with good design. Jenny Shia produces the show for Dwell, and Laura Spencer is our editor and producer here in Kansas City. And I'm your host, Dan McGinn. Our theme music is by Slog Ralden. Thanks to Rich Campanella, Steve Rake, and Emily Taylor Welty for contributing to Clams Three Ways. Thanks to our tape sinkers, Alexander Adams, Mara Laser, and Anthony Cave. And thanks to champion oyster shucker Aaron Williams and the rest of his compadres at the Blind Pelican. Check out dwell.com slash podcast to learn more and see images of what we cover today. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to hit subscribe and leave a review. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Check out dwell.com slash podcast to learn more and see images of what we cover today. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to hit subscribe and leave a review. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow Dwell Magazine on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to get your daily design fix. We'll see you next time as we dig into the backstory of another raw material. <laughs>